there, and welcome to Sex and the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and today, I'm here to introduce you to a goddess you probably haven't heard of before. She's a regional goddess of southern India, and is as fluid as the river she sometimes personifies. Both elusive and omnipresent, she is referred to as the goddess that is too hard to bear. You're listening to Sex and the Sacred, and today, we're talking about Gangama. Before we get going today, I have to confess to you that I am not a scholar of Hinduism. I have read and studied books on various Hindu traditions, myths, and deities, and have even had the honor of visiting the Hindu temple in Robbinsville a year in the U.S., I try to learn all that I can, however, my grasp of practical Hinduism is minimal at best. To remedy my lack of knowledge, I have relied heavily on two great scholars for today's episode. First, I have turned to Dr. Jessica Van Tyne Birkenholtz, whom I studied under in my later years of undergrad. Dr. B has been an invaluable resource to me, and is the only reason I have even my minimal grasp of Hinduism at all. Second, and more directly related to Gangama herself, I will lean on Dr. Joyce Burkhalter Fluickiger. I promise to introduce you to Dr. Fluickiger's work later on in this episode. However, my intros are getting longer and longer each week, so I think I'd better hop to it and get started. All right, let's start, as all good scholars do, with a story, and I hope you'll forgive my pronunciation. As a little girl, Gangama was abandoned in a dry paddy field from where she was taken in as a daughter by a ready caste family in the village of Avilala on the outskirts of Tirupati. There was a particularly powerful Palagadu who used to demand sexual access and sometimes marriage with the beautiful virgins living in his domain. When his glance fell on a pubescent Gangama as she was drying her hair on her rooftop, He desired her and approached her parents with his intention to marry her. Not knowing their daughter was the goddess, they were afraid and tried to resist his overtures. But Gangama assured them that they should assent. She would take care of herself. As the couple, Gangama and the Palagadu, were circumambulating the sacred fire in the final marriage rite, Gangama turned around to face the bridegroom and showed him her true self, stretching from earth to sky. Petrified, he ran away. She chased him for six days, taking on a series of veshams, or disguises, including those of a milkmaid, an ascetic, a snake charmer, a shepherd, a sweeper, so that the Paligadu wouldn't see her before she saw him. Finally, hearing the princely or Dora vesham Gangama being praised in public, the Paligadu came out of hiding to see who was competing with him for such praise and Gangama beheaded him. After killing the Palagadu, Gangama wandered the village, showing herself in her true form for the duration of what is now the Jatara, or festival. At the end of the festival and its narrative, Gangama departs from Tirupati over the seven seas. This rather succinct version of Gangama's story comes from Dr. Fluickiger's book, When the World Becomes Female, Guises of a South Indian Goddess. It is a synopsis of a story told many times in many ways throughout her book, as she recounts her interactions during her visits to Tirupati and Avilala. 
and I'll put it out there right now. There is so much that we could unpack here. Given the time, I could spend the next year's worth of episodes just breaking down Gangama's story and the variety of rituals performed for her. Luckily, Dr. Fluickiger's book does a great deal of that for us. So today, we can zoom in and focus particularly on the aspects of Gangama worship that are relevant to this podcast. Let's start with some basics. A 12-day celebration, or Jatara, occurs in Tirupati every year at the height of the summer season, filled with various rituals based on this core Gangama story and the other tales surrounding her. During this time, devotees perform rituals intended to heat and cool the goddess, to boost her power, and then sedate her for the upcoming year. Boys visit her temple and beat her statue's feet with reeds to raise her emotion, and then fan her to cool her anger. As the 12 days progress and people enact different parts of her story, the goddess is said to grow in power until she is strong enough to keep illness and drought away. However, before the end of the festival, she must be loved, praised, cooled, and decompressed enough so that she does not become the same illness and drought. Gangama is always described as having ugra, a word which translates directly to anger, but more accurately means something like too much. Too much of what, you might ask? Well, in some cases, she has too much power. In others, she has too many needs, hence the reason she's only given daily attention during her festival. At all times, Gangama has a great excess of energy called Shakti. And Shakti, my friends, is one of the coolest concepts I've ever encountered. Although Shakti is personified in the Hindu goddess of the same name, it is more widely used to describe the divine cosmic energy that is unique to womanhood. Shakti is a female force. It is wild, powerful, and often dangerous. All goddesses have Shakti, as do all mortal women. Gangama, however, has so much Shakti that it is impossible for humans to worship her every day. Because of this, a year's worth of devotion is concentrated into the 12-day festival. And while I would love nothing more than to ramble on about Shakti, it's time we jump into details of the said festival. As a side note here, if you want to learn more about Shakti, which I highly recommend, head to www.sexandthesacred.com and check out the show notes. The best way for me to introduce you to Gangama worship, as it takes place during the festival, is to introduce you first to Joyce Fluickiger in her work. Fluickiger is an ethnographer. If you've never heard the term before, it describes a scholar who does research by spending a great deal of time in the field. In this case, it means that Fluickiger has spent years in southern India, learning about Gangama from the people she meets. Her book, When the World Becomes Female, is the most extensive body of written knowledge on Gangama that we have. Therefore, it is an essential work for those of us who can't afford to travel to India ourselves. Here is a very short version of what the festival looks like, according to Fluickiger. I'll make a list for you. Number one, the festival has many different parts. There is no official schedule, no one person who organizes anything. The festival just happens and people participate in various parts of the story in their different ways. Number two, 
the goddess has many forms, especially during her festival. She is simultaneously little piles of turmeric paste, giant stone heads, hundreds of small clay pots, and so much more. Number three. The festival, loosely, follows the story you heard earlier, adapting to each of the goddesses' disguises throughout the days of the festival. And number four. On the last days of the festival, men take on a final disguise, that of the goddess herself. Let's get into this last point a little more. There are two different groups of men who take on the goddess's form each year. First are men of the Kaikala, or weaving, caste who actually become Gangama. For several days, they are recognized in their homes and streets as the goddess. They are given cooling drinks to satisfy Gangama's ugra and are considered by the observing scholar to be ritual specialists. Fluikiger notes that although this group becomes the goddess, none of the participants seem to take on feminine behavior, body language, or gender roles. Although she does not go into great detail on this point, she wonders aloud about the impact that this has on the female relatives of Kaikala men. What does it mean to be the daughter of a man who once a year is also the goddess you worship? The second group of men who guise as Gangama are not ritual specialists. They are laymen who take on the goddess to fulfill a vow made earlier in the year. These vows are made either by the men themselves or by their mothers on their behalf. Fluikiger cites both recovery from illness and acceptance into university as reasons to take on the form of the goddess. Not all men take on the goddess's form every year. However, some do it annually their whole lives. These men, as opposed to Kaikala men, are not considered to actually be the goddess. They are still viewed by those around them as being male. This group of laymen who take Gangama's clothing create an interesting conflict in the gendered aspect of the annual festival. According to Fluikiger, many women stay inside their homes during the last days of the festival, when laymen in their saris are in the streets. Most of the more somber worship and sacrificial elements of the festival have already occurred, so the men in guises flood the village and band together. Fluikiger says that many of these men drink together, and on some occasions can get quite rowdy. It is for this reason that women tend to feel safer in their own homes on these last few days of the festival. My question for you all today, then, is this. What does the practice of guising as Gangama mean for the women and men of Tirupati and Avilala? What does it do for the community and for individuals? I know I don't really have an answer. You might think that the annual tradition of wearing women's clothing and either becoming or appearing as the goddess would create a more fluid understanding of gender, perhaps leading to a greater acceptance of gender fluidity itself. However, this definitely doesn't seem to be the case. Men take on the goddess once a year, but are expected to adhere to traditional masculinities at all other times. Women, who always share some Shakti energy with the goddess, participate in the annual festival only domestically and are not able to become the goddess themselves. Why is that? Why doesn't the complexity of gender related to Hindu deities 
apply as evenly to human communities of southern India? Why does this celebration of Gangama, who for 12 days makes ultimate reality entirely female, not result in a greater reverence for women and womanhood during the rest of the year? I don't know. As is usually the case in these episodes, I'm leaving you with more questions than I am answers. I encourage you to read Fluikiker's book and to explore Gangama worship and gender dynamics in Southern India. Leave me a comment or send me an email on the Sex and the Sacred website. I'd really love to hear your thoughts on this. I find the material for this week daunting and frankly, I urge you to seek more information beyond what I can offer you here. Visit the show notes for a little more guidance and help me to learn more too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned a little bit about Gangama and the power of divine feminine energy. Next time on Sex and the Sacred, I'll be discussing an Old Testament classic. Were they friends or were they lovers? You guessed it, we're talking about Ruth and Naomi. Subscribe now and make sure you don't miss it. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Gangama, Shakti, or what the Gangama festival looks like each year, head to www.sexandthesacred.com where you can find the show notes for this and every episode. Likewise, if you'd like to get in on our super cool Sex and the Sacred t-shirts, mugs, and other merch, search for Sex and the Sacred on your Redbubble or Patreon pages where you can find us and help support the show. That's all for now. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and you're listening to Sex and the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. Thanks for tuning in with me. I'll see you next time. Bye.